All right, we're going to be looking in the Gospel of Matthew in just a few minutes, and we will be in chapter 11. And you go, Scott, it seems like every time you get up, you say, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. And that's because we have been for about eight months, and we're just going verse by verse through this gospel, this good news that God has for us in these challenging days. And so we'll be looking at chapter 11 in a moment. And um, if you want to open up a Bible and be ready to read along, there's some really important verses that we're going to be examining. There are some extra Bibles on the table over here if you uh, would like to use one during the hour. So uh, you know me, I like to do that imaginary thing of what would happen if I could get in the time machine and go back and see something take place. You ever do that? Have you ever decided, have you ever kind of zeroed in on, if I only had the opportunity to go back to one time in history, to one place in history and see something happen, what would that be? I mean, would that be like the very beginning in creation and see God create out of nothing something? That would be remarkable. That would be awesome to see, would it not? Or maybe for you it would be a little bit later and you'd you'd say, you know, I I always wanted to see Moses and I'd love to have been there when the the waters parted at the Red Sea. You know, somehow I think the movie has just fallen a little short of how that might have been. You go, you know, I've always been kind of captivated by the conquest stories in Joshua. I would love to go back to the day that Joshua led the people to march around the city of Jericho, and then you saw these massive walls that were protecting that city just fall. That'd be awesome to see, wouldn't it? There you go, I'm kind of more of of a David guy. I would love to have been there on the day that the shepherd boy David faced the giant Goliath and felled him in the name of the Lord. That would be awesome. Absolutely awesome to see. I think at the top of my list, though, would be around A.D. 30 to 31, 32 in the day of Jesus. And in this little area that some have referred to as the Evangelical Triangle. And let me show you by way of a map what we're talking about. There on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee was a city that uh, Jesus spent a lot of time in called Capernaum. And as we've been going through Matthew, we've read a lot about Capernaum. And just a couple of miles to the north is another little city called Chorazin. And then just to uh, the east a little bit, just uh, three or four miles, is Bethsaida. In that little triangle of those three cities, Jesus did most of the miracles that we read of while he was in Galilee. And so uh, if we were to go back in time and just hang around that little, you know, triangle of area that Jesus hung out in, we uh, perhaps would get to hear the Sermon on the Mount and see the feeding of the 5,000, perhaps get to see Jesus walk on water, see Jesus heal uh, uh, the centurion's son, Uh, see Jesus heal Peter's mother-in-law. We would see him cast out numerous demons. And it's also the place, Bethsaida, is where Andrew and Peter grew up, along with another disciple-to-be, Philip. And uh, Capernaum is where Andrew and Peter ended up 
moving and working along with James and John, fishermen. All these guys heard the call to follow Jesus in this little piece of geography. And we see the formation of their lives at this time along with a tax collector in Capernaum by the name of Matthew. These guys that later become apostles of the church. What an awesome time, in my estimation, to live and to witness certain historic events that took place. Now, the other end of the spectrum, there's some times in history and some places in history I don't want to get anywhere near. Are you with me? For example, there are three other cities that are going to be mentioned in today's text that we're going to read. Two of them are on the Mediterranean coast that I've highlighted there for you, Tyre and Sidon. These were ancient cities that were way before the time of Jesus. Tyre, uh, between 1,000 and 2,000 years before Jesus, was an incredible Phoenician port city. Uh, It had become so advanced in ships and navigating the seas that they literally had partner ports all around the Mediterranean. It was a tremendous force for commerce as well as conquest. Some say that uh, the the Tyrian uh, influence reached all the way to Spain. And this was during the time of David and Solomon that Tyre was so powerful and so influential that uh, they were known for their influence on the Hebrews. And many kind of left the faith of following God or seriously compromised their faith in following God by acclimating to a lot of uh, the influence of Tyre. So much so that God condemned the city. And as you read across the Old Testament, you'll hear from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Zechariah, all these guys just blast Tyre in the name of the Lord and condemn it and say that God's going to judge it severely. Just to the north of Tyre is an even older city by the name of Sidon. Uh, Sidon was an influential port city for many, many centuries and uh, not only was known for its naval fleet and its capacity around the Mediterranean, but it was a place that uh, had a lot of artisans, a lot of artists. And they worked with silver and with gold. A lot of coppersmiths, you know, created uh, magnificent pieces that were wanted and desired all around the world. It was a place of great commerce. It was a place where uh, fabrics... And, and dyes were created. And so it's kind of a fashion leader of its day. It's kind of like the New York City of its day. Place of a lot of art and commerce and fashion, you know, leading the way kind of stuff. They were particularly influential on the world of Hebrews during the time of the judges. And many compromised their faith and were led away from their faith in God because of the influence of Sidon. And similarly, the prophets are full of things to say about Sidon in a condemning, judging kind of way, what God's going to do to that city. As you go way to the south of the Sea of Galilee, probably the most infamous city in all of the Bible and in all of history is Sodom. And, of course, you know, this is in the day of Abraham, way, way back before Jesus, thousands of years before Jesus. 
And it was such a wicked, depraved, evil, godless place that, as you know, God judged it not with some foreign power rising up and conquering it like with Tyre and Sidon, but directly sent fire and brimstone upon that city and and destroyed that city. So much so that even to this day, archaeologists can't determine exactly where that city was. They just know a general proximity. So I've mentioned all six of these cities, cities that I would love to be in in their time and see God do stuff, and cities I wouldn't want to be anywhere around during their time and when God did stuff. And they're all mentioned in today's text that we're going to read in just a minute. So most of you know I've been uh, out on a little vacation. I was gone for a couple of weeks. And uh, one of our dear friends this past week said, so you've been out for a couple of Sundays and now you're going to be teaching again. Uh, What are you going to be teaching your first Sunday back? And so I conveyed some of the content of Matthew 11 and said, uh, we'll talk a little bit about judgment and repentance. And immediately... There was a groan. Oh, are you kidding me? Can we not talk about anything more positive? See, that's why I love this church. You guys are just very real with me. You know, there was like, oh, okay, well, that's nice. It was like, oh, do we have to hear about judgment and repentance? And uh, the fact of the matter is, yes, we do. And there are three very important reasons why we should and must. And I want to just highlight that for a moment, and then we're going to read the text. The first is this. This overall series that we've been in for eight months is about good news. It's about how God loved us so much that He came to us in the person of Christ. And if Christ thought it well to warn us about judgment and to say, you have to pay attention to this. You have to tend to your soul about these matters. This is crucial. This is eternal. Then, friends, to be warned and to be instructed is kind. It's good. It's helpful. And so that's one reason. Another reason is that Jesus and the Bible in its entirety talk a lot about judgment and about the uh, condemnation that is to come for many on a day of accountability. And if Jesus saw fit to talk about this so much, then it probably behooves us to think about it and to consider it a little bit more than what we do. So you have to understand, I'm not cherry-picking here and going, I think I'm going to talk about judgment. Where can I find a passage on that? We've just been marching through Matthew, and here's where we are. And here's uh, a spot where I think the Lord wanted to meet with us in a divine appointment today to address a few things in our lives. And the third thing I'll say to you is this. The purpose for Jesus giving such warnings and the Bible giving such warnings about judgment and condemnation is with the hope of our repentance. It's with the hope that somehow sounding the alarm will serve as a wake-up call for us and that we will be responsive in the best sense of that word 
and we will repent. We'll turn our heart around and we'll turn toward Him and do life as He has called us to do life. So let me say that this entire service has been planned with our repentance in mind. So yes, you've noticed over here to my right a special little area that uh, has been set apart for prayer today, for repentance. Call it an altar if you want to, but it's a little sacred space where you can do some business with God today. And I know, friend, if you want to do something with God and kind of repent and turn your heart toward Him today, you can do that very privately, quietly. Nobody will have a clue what's going on in your mind and in your heart right in your seat. I understand that. But there are those times in the Bible where a public call for a public response takes place because of how important it is to the worshiper. And we felt impressed to offer that kind of public opportunity for you today. So here's how it works. Beginning at this point, all the way until the final benediction. If at any moment you're stirred by God in ways that you know, I must come before Him, I must confess, I must repent, I must turn my heart to Him about this or that. I must bring my life into better alignment with Him. Then you are welcome to quietly just move over to this little space and kneel or prostrate yourself or stand or whatever posture serves you best to do some business with God. And after you've done a little business with God, then you can just quietly return to your seat. So if you've noticed in the program today, there's more of our singing and scripture reflection kind of worship elements that are going to take place for several minutes after the teaching. If you feel impressed before I'm through teaching, do business with God. And certainly after the teaching, you're welcome at any point. So that's why we're going to be doing what we're doing and that's how you might go about some of that over these next few moments. Now, let's get into it. So if you have your Bible open to Matthew 11, we're going to read these verses that I've already been alluding to. We will see these six cities referenced in there. And we'll get at the Lord Jesus himself clarifying some things for us. So verse 20, chapter 11. Then... He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. 
And at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Some familiar verses and some not so familiar verses. Let's take a few moments to think about them. Keep your Bible open, because as we walk right through these verses, you'll want to see how they're playing out. So we have several pronouncements by Christ in these verses. I'm just going to highlight three sections of them. And the first is this, what we would call the curses and the judgment. And uh, Jesus kind of uses a biblical formula by which to announce these things. And when I say that, I'm talking about he borrows language like the Old Testament prophets when he starts talking about woe to you, woe to you. That was a, a very somber, sober kind of thing for the prophets of old to say, and so it was for Jesus. And notice to whom Jesus is saying this. That little evangelical triangle that I said, hey, I'd kind of like to go back to that place and to that day and see what Jesus was up to, is the, the area that Jesus is condemning. And sometimes when I've made reference to the, the matter of, you know, hell is going to be bad, but there's, it can even get worse. There can, can be levels of experience in hell where some are having it even worse than others. This is one of those passages that allude to that. Because he says, Chorazin and Bethsaida are going to have a worse condemnation than Tyre and Sidon. That Capernaum is going to have a worse condemnation than Sodom. And you think, how in the world can that be? Places where Jesus did so many wondrous miracles. And friends, that's exactly the point. Jesus said, I have done so much in your midst. I have removed so many barriers for your lack of repentance so that you could come to God if you wanted to. And yet you have chosen still not to repent. If the pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon had had me come to them like this, or if Sodom had had me come to them like this, they all would have repented. Which theologically speaks to the omniscience of God. He knows what even other alternative choices we made, how that would have played out. He said, if I had come to them in the ways that I have come to you, they would have all turned to God. And yet you have not. And your judgment is going to be horrific. Friends, uh... When we 
make biblical references to like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. Those cities had been kind of this condemned picture for so many centuries, for so many thousands of years. They'd become kind of like the proverbial cities of condemnation so that they were regularly referenced by people. Immediately, people understood what you meant by that. It's kind of like our proverbial reference to Las Vegas. People just know these places and God's not going to let them go. So this is kind of tantamount to Jesus saying, you know, all you guys that are in Seattle where it's kind of become this international, cosmopolitan uh, place of art and commerce and business and leading various industries across the world. It's going to be way worse for you than it's going to be for Vegas because of the ways that I've come to you over and over and over and displayed and revealed myself and called you to repentance and you did not. So think about that for a moment. How many times have you had, have you had answered prayers? How many times have you seen miracles? How many times have you been in gatherings like this and heard testimonies from around the room of God's goodness, God's graciousness, God's provisions? See, we cannot have these displays of God's presence and God's graciousness and not have accountability for it. So for those of us that have had many movements of God in and around our lives, we're accountable for all that. How, how do we handle, how do we steward such manifestations of God with us? And he said, if you don't respond to that with repentance, if you don't respond to that with a wholehearted, committed life to me, The judgment to that will be harsh. More harsh than in other places where it's been more pagan and more God forsaken. Then see in the second place where he starts talking about revelations. That is to say, God has seen to it that those who are proud, who think they know it all, who have... Uh, this possession of some kind of extraordinary wisdom, God has seen to it that they don't get it. Uh, if you go ahead and read later in the New Testament, in the book of James, we are clued in more about why God acts like that, where we're told that God opposes the proud, the self-sufficient, the independent one who thinks they've got it all together. He opposes them but gives grace to the humble. And thus, Jesus said, God has seen to it that those that think they have it all together, that think they're so smart, that are so independent, you know, God's uh, going to see to it that they stay in a fog about all this. But for those who will be humble, who will be like little children, who will be quick to confess, I don't have it all together. I do make a mess of it all. I am kind of a screw-up. I need a Savior in my life. For those that have that kind of heart disposition, he said, I'm going to see to it that you have God the Father revealed to you. You'll get it. It'll make sense to you. 
And it, theologically, another one of those exclusive statements in the Bible says, nobody, nobody gets these revelations of God unless I give them. And then in the third place, he says, now here's what this is all about. The reason that I've given you these woes, the reason I've gotten so somber and sober with you, the reason that I've tried to give these, these very legitimate eternal warnings to you is because I really want to see you come to saving grace and faith. I really want to see you become a legitimate son or daughter of God and to know Him now and forever. And he's really, in these closing verses that we read just a moment ago, is speaking to legalists. He's saying, you guys that are, you know, working the prayers and working the worship and working the service and all this kind of stuff, and you're going to try to, you know, tally up the, the score, and you're going to have more righteous deeds than bad deeds. And all that. Listen, that's a heavy load that you can't carry because you're not going to get there with that. You've got to dump that load that will never get you there and be yoked to me. Because I've already done it all. I've, I have done the righteous thing for you. And if you will yoke your life to me, if you'll connect your life to me, then you'll find rest from that legalistic labor. And you'll find an ease in your faith. Now... This passage is so often misquoted and misrepresented. You know, any of you that are having a hard time in life and, and you know, stress is pounding uh, down on you and it's getting to be a heavy load, just come to Jesus and he'll make life easier for you. That is not what this text is talking about. He's not talking about making life easier for you. He's talking about you getting off the performance legalistic track. I'm going to earn my way to God. And come to him. And accept His provision and His grace, His forgiveness. So that's the pronouncements that Jesus makes to these three cities where He had done so much disclosing of Himself and of God the Father. And the question before us then is, what do we do with that? How are we to think about that? How are we to respond? Well, there's four, at least, primarily, I think, though, four types of response to the gospel of Jesus and the, the things that we've just talked about. And one of those is to remain a non-believer. I don't get it. I don't believe it. I think it's just religious fooey, just like so many other religious kinds of things. And you reject it, and you never commit yourself to it. Okay? That's one kind. And then another kind is more of a seeker. I don't know. I really want to ask more questions. I kind of want to get a few more answers. Uh, I haven't figured all this out, but at this point, you know, the jury's out, and I'm not, I'm not going to commit my life to that. Right? And then there's a third type who's convinced. I think this thing about God and about Jesus and how it's all represented in the Bible, I, I think that's probably the way it is. I believe that. And there have been, you know, some commitments made to that, but they're kind of half-hearted and halfway. 
And then there's those who are convinced and they bet the house on it. They bet all of their life on that. They, they cast themselves on the mercy of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. And they are wholeheartedly, with a full life, full devotion, committed to Christ. Now, let me just make sure that we're clear about this, friends. Those first three that I described for you fit the category of rejecting Jesus and his gospel. Okay? You go, oh, no, wait, wait, wait a minute, time out. What about that third bullet there? Those guys that were kind of convinced about it but kind of half-hearted about it? Friends, that was Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. They got it. They saw it. They experienced it. They were convinced at various levels about all that. And they were committed at some degree or another to those kinds of things. But it was not a wholehearted, give my life and soul to Jesus kind of thing. You say, how do you know? Well, A... Jesus said it was that way, thus the woes and the condemnation that he spoke to them. And B, all three of those cities later were destroyed and obliterated, exist no more. And C, the work of archaeologists in the years that have come after their demise have unearthed these cities. And interestingly, sadly, each of those cities had a prominent Synagogue. You know what we mean by synagogue. That was a Jewish gathering place for people to come and worship God, serve God, learn about God. And each of those places had a prominent synagogue. And as they began to unearth these synagogues and look at them and reassemble them and study them, in the mosaics that were on the floor of those synagogues were signs of the zodiac. What in the world is that doing in a house of God? And in Chorazin, on the wall of the synagogue, was a Medusa. You know your Greek mythology and the Greek gods and all that kind of thing? That, uh, you know, beast that you'd look at and you'd die? A Medusa into the wall of the synagogue. And all of the synagogues had representations of Helios, which was a sun god in Hellenistic or Greek thinking. All of which is to say what, friends? All of which is to say syncretism was rampant in those cities with those people. What's syncretism? Syncretism is when you take a little of faith in God or Christianity, if you will, and you marry it to other systems of thought, to other philosophies, to other religions. So it's a little Christianity in New Age. It's a little Christianity in Buddhism. It's a little Christianity in Islam. It's a little Christianity in the... And you do this kind of, you know, enculturated, get along with the rest of the world, not too separate from everyone else, mix and mingle it all up. And that, friends, describes Christianity all over America. America. 
And that's why the day of accountability is going to be a sad day for America. Because we have had God do so much in our midst. And we've responded to it in such half-hearted or no-hearted kinds of ways. And the call, the gracious call, is to repentance. To turn from that mixing and mingling of Christian faith with all other kinds of junk that's in the culture. And separate yourself from the culture. So that you still kind of live in it all, but you're not of it. Which the Bible calls holiness. So let me be very clear today. We're not talking today about how can you be a better person? How can you have better behavior? How can you kind of get your act together? We're not talking about those kinds of things, all of which have value in and of themselves. What we're talking about is holiness. Where you are separated from whatever unto God. And you're betting and banking your life on the righteousness of Jesus, not any righteousness you can ever generate. In order to have a relationship with an eternal, holy God. So the question is, will you repent and follow Christ only? And will you renounce your affections and your appetites for anything else that hinders your wholehearted following of Christ. Now, even as I said that last phrase, God's Spirit began to pop things into your mind. Anything else that hinders. I'm not even going to list that kind of stuff. The Holy Spirit has just identified a number of those things for each of us. That's from what we repent so that we turn unto God more fully. I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and we're going to transition, and Jerry's going to come forward and lead us through some other elements. And as we said at the outset, this will be a time of response for these next, you know, few minutes, this period of time, for you to respond to God. It's been a divine appointment. He knew who would be here today for this talk. Let's pray. So, Father, we do confess that you are a good God. You've been good to bring our attention to some very hard, heavy matters today. And I pray that it is served as an alarm, as a wake-up call. I pray that our hearts will turn from anything that's not of you, turn to yourself. Give us the grace, the courage, the wherewithal to take such important steps today. In Jesus' name, amen.